He broke his promise. Several years ago, I met a girl who had been abandoned by her father. She told me a story. She told me this story in a crowded room. And as she looked on, as strangers looked at her, she fought to keep her composure. She recounted what had happened. And she said, well, he just left. One day he was gone. He had taken all his things, all his worldly possessions, but he left his family. He had left the people in his life and disappeared. And though he had promised to be a husband, he had broken that promise. Though he had promised to be a loving father, he had broken that one too. Now, unfortunately, this situation is all too common. And though we might not know what it means to have our family abandon us, we all certainly share in this experience of broken promises. For every single one of us have suffered because others have broken their promises to us. And crucially, we have also failed to keep our promises to others. Strangers have lied to us and we have been tricked. Friends have failed us and we have been hurt. We have broken the promises that we made to each other. And that hurts. Broken promises are all too familiar. But know this and see this today. That this is not the case with God. God's promises are greater than any human promise. Let's turn to the scripture today. And as we do that, remember that God's word is good. God's word is true. As we open our Bibles today, remind yourself of that. God's word is good. It is true. The text for today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 15 through 24. And as you turn there, it might be helpful to remember a bit of the context where in the first part of chapter 22, God tests Abraham. He says to Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham obeys, even to the point where he is about to kill his son on the, on the mount. But at that point, God stays his hand and he says, no, I will provide for you another sacrifice, a ram caught in a thicket of thorns. And now we pick up with the conclusion of this story in chapter 22, verse 15. Please follow along with me. 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Kamul the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazald, Pildash, Jiplad, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rima, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Mekah. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you are the everlasting God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and ours as well. We ask that you make yourself known to us through the Holy Spirit and speak through your word. Let us hear it and believe it and trust in it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So there's a bit of context. 
Uh, we move through this text. It's been a pretty long process. If you've been here and have heard maybe one or two of the um, associated sermons, you know, we started at the beginning of chapter 22, and some things have happened in this chapter that are important for us to remember. First, let's remember that the very first thing was God test Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. And we actually see that Abraham has so much faith in God that he's willing to do this. He has faith that God is powerful enough to raise Isaac from the dead because God had promised that Abraham would have a son, would have an heir. This points us to a greater faith, a faith in the resurrection where God would raise his own son, Christ Jesus, from the dead. We've also seen that God used that experience of Abraham where he is about to sacrifice his son to point to a greater sacrifice. Remember, God provides another, a substitutionary sacrifice. Instead of Isaac, Abraham, provi- uh, Abraham sacrifices a ram. And that sacrifice points us to this greater sacrifice of God's own son, whom he loves, and through whom all Christians have redemption of sin from sin. Now, in this last section, we'll see three things that deal with God's promise. We'll see that God's promise is certain. God's promise is gracious. And God's promise is greater still. God's promise is certain, it is gracious, and it is greater still. First, let's deal with that idea that God's promise is a certain thing. It's something that we can surely depend on. And we know that God's promise is certain because it's part of God's very character. Specifically, God's character is a trustworthy one. More, than, more trustworthy than anybody we could know at this moment, any human being, we see that God's promise is certain because of his trustworthiness. Let's look in verse 15 to the first part of verse 16. Verse 15 begins, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. God swears by his very name, By myself I have sworn. And what does it mean to swear by yourself? Or what does it mean for God to swear by himself? Well, let's consider what Abraham had to be thinking at this time. Because Abraham spent his lifetime kind of learning that God, when he promised something, was trustworthy. A promise made by God is certain, for he who has promised is always faithful. And for a moment, we can think about this, um, not in terms of God, but we should think about this in terms of ourselves. When we say, well... What, is having, what does it mean to have a trustworthy character? And so often, that's not our experience. Our experience with others and even our own experience with ourselves is then that we are not people of trustworthy character. Where we could all stand here at this very moment and look each other in the eye and say, I promise that I will never hurt you. You could look to the person right next to you and you could say, I promise that I will never speak ill of you and that I will never do anything to harm you, and I promise that I will never try to, I will never make you feel as if you were unloved. And those are all good promises. But the problem with those promises is that they're hindered by our character. Because at some point, we will harm each other. We will be angry with one another. We will speak ill of one another. We will fail in a promise to love each other. And that is a consequence of our character. For I cannot guarantee anything made in my own name. 
just as a teacher cannot guarantee that you will learn something, a musician cannot guarantee that you enjoy their music, a doctor cannot guarantee that you will live through a medical procedure. We cannot guarantee anything, not even our own behavior or our love, with certainty. After all, we are not God. But God, as he is revealed in the Bible, is trustworthy. For when he who made all things and sustains all things makes a promise, it's a certain thing. Abraham learned this when God called him away from his family into nothingness. Abraham had nothing but was a wanderer, a sojourner. He had no homeland, but God provided for him. Abraham had enemies, people who sought to see him dead or people who sought to take away his possessions. What did God do? God protected him. Abraham learned that God was trustworthy when at a time where it was physically impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a son, he provided one. And most recently, Abraham learned that God is faithful because at the, very, at the moment where he was about to sacrifice his son, God provided another sacrifice for Abraham. Listen to the author of Hebrews where he explains what it means for God to make this certain promise. This is Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13, if you wish to follow along there. Hebrews six thirteen, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For God, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that two, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. God's promise is certain. And what does the author of Hebrews say? He says, and he makes sure that it is clear to the heirs of that promise, that is you and I, by being redundant, by promising both based on the promise of God and the character of God, that this is, going to be, this is going to be something that is true. This is going to be something that is guaranteed. And what is our response to this? It is to trust in God. Flee to him for refuge and hold fast to the hope set before you. We'll discuss the form of this hope a little bit later on as we move through the passage. But know, just from this very first few verses, that God's promises are certain. And we know they're certain because God's character is a trustworthy one. And because it's so certain, we should elaborate a little bit on what it means to trust in him. What does it mean to trust in God? Well, what does the rest of the passage say in Genesis 22? I'll begin with the second part of verse 16. And we hear this from, the, uh, from God. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. What happens here? God makes a promise that he will surely bless Abraham. It is not Abraham's task to bless himself. For he couldn't do it. But God will. Again, this is an application for Abraham that spanned his entire lifetime. 
Remember, it took decades for Abraham to realize that he must trust in God. It was a repeated process where in Genesis 12 and 15, God promises again and again, Abraham, I will make you the father of a great nation. I will make your offspring like the stars. But in 12 and 15, chapters 12 and 15 of Genesis, remember Abraham had no offspring. And then in chapter 17, he says, and you'll, there will be the sign I give to you, the sign of circumcision. And all Hebrew men must be circumcised in order to be part of this covenant, this promise that I've made to you. But still, no heirs. But what happens? Well, throughout that entire lifetime, Abraham is being taught that God is working in every circumstance, not only to produce what he has promised, but to produce faith that will have Abraham trust that God will produce what he has promised. Let's say this in a different way. God worked in every circumstance to produce faith in Abraham, which was also effective to produce faithfulness. To the point where Abraham was even willing in the last section of chapter, in the last section of, a middle section of chapter 22, to sacrifice his own son. Thus, in all the promises made to Abraham by God, Abraham had faith and was able to respond in faith because of God. God completed his work by being faithful and producing faithfulness. The conditions of the covenant and the promise of scripture were fulfilled. Indeed, the promises of God are certain, for God completes his work. In the past few months, we've had many, many sermons on this. It seems like the reminder, the application is always to be reminded of how faithful God has been. And so haven't we already seen this? Haven't we already heard this? For maybe you'll recognize this passage. For it is his divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us, to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, know that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared or effectively made beforehand that we would walk in them. You should never doubt in the character of God or his work in us. For God's promise is a certain thing. And for Abraham, as well as us, it's a battle to do that. It's a battle to think every moment of the day, I must trust in God and not in myself. For we can't guarantee that we're going to be a great nation or that we will be safe in our future or claim an identity as God's people. We can't do that in our own words. We can't deliver through our own efforts blessing, whether that be in the form of social status or relationships or possessions or any number of things that can be taken away from you. We can't even guarantee through our own efforts that our souls would be eternally secure. We can't, but God can. And his promise is a certain thing. He will do these things. We should also recognize that God's promise is a gracious one. Um, begin looking with me in chapter 22, verse 17 of Genesis, where we'll see that God's promise is a gracious thing. Verse 17, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now at this point, we probably should think to ourselves, we throw around the word gracious a lot, but do we know what it means? Maybe one, ter- one kind of definition of graciousness that you're familiar with if you grew up in the churches, graciousness is something beyond what you deserve. And if we take ourselves out of the context of church, we might realize that so often that is not something that we wish to do. So often our thoughts and our actions betray an attitude where we do not want to show others favor, but we certainly wish that we would gain or that we would be shown more than we deserve. Perhaps one particular way this is demonstrated in culture is this discussion or obsession with the phrase karma or the word karma. It's not as if people that say, that use the word um, or the phrase good karma, bad karma are strict adherents to Hinduism or Taoism or Buddhism. No, it's that they're attracted to this idea that if they do good, disproportionate good could be shown to them And the idea that when my enemies do bad things, far worse will come to them as a cosmic consequence for their actions. But the discussion where we use that sort of, um, if we have that sort of attitude, we miss the point. For what does the Bible say? It does not say that doing a good deed makes you good. It does not say that being labeled as a good person or being better than those around you makes you good. Nothing that we do can make us worthy before God, for we are all undeserving. When Abraham was called by God in Genesis, he was certainly undeserving. He must real, you have to realize along with Abraham that we are also undeserving, for when Abraham was called, he was nothing. He came from a land of pagans. He had no great fame. He had no great wealth. And crucially, as the promise has always been pointing to, he had no heirs. And so when Abraham died, no one would remember him. Without God, Abraham's life was small. It was insignificant. Who would have remembered a man who only dug wells, who wandered with no homeland? But God was gracious to Abraham. He bestowed upon him many blessings so that a well-digging and wandering man would become, what was Abraham? The father of great nation. Now we were reminded about this. If you read through into Deuteronomy, Moses will remind the people of Israel, like this, is, this was your lot. In Deuteronomy, Moses states, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of peoples, but it is because God loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out of, with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. What God grants to Abraham and what God grants to Abraham's offspring is his love. Though they are few, though they are wicked, though they are undeserving. God's promise is a gracious one where he promises his love. And it's demonstrated 
to the Israelites so that we would understand what it means for God to have grace on sinners. Though we are wicked, though we are undeserving, though there are few perhaps of us, God chose for himself a people to be holy, to preserve a nation though they rebel. This is a promise from a perfect and all-powerful God to ransom us and Abraham as, as children of Abraham. And kind of this, this builds up to this greater point, this uh, greater issue that we've been building up to kind of thematically throughout the chapter, which is as God has made a promise to Abraham, it's only a shadow of things to come. For there is a greater promise, a greater promise um, that is going to come in a future time. Please look with me in verses 20 through 24. See our last main point. It's that God's promise is greater still. Now, beginning in verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your son, brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Camuel the brother of Aram. Chesed, Hazald, Pildash, Chiplul, Bethuel, and Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rima, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Mekah. <laughs> so a kind of interesting point here is, if you've tuned out because we just read through a genealogy, uh, come back. It might be our response a lot of the time. So if you're drifting off because we heard a lot of names that were unfamiliar, well, we come back and see that this genealogy, like most that we see in the Old Testament, is a declaration of things to come. It ties into the promises of God, which is greater and still to come. For he would make for himself a holy people unto himself, a great people. And remember what he said to Abraham, that through your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. So this genealogy is a happy announcement of that. That look, God is providing. He's growing your family. We have two families here. They recently had kids. And we rejoice with them, right? Understand, that's the sort of emotion that you should be having when you read through a genealogy. It's an announcement. God has provided. He's provided in the form of children. And we are to be gracious, grateful for that. And kind of as we work through this genealogy, maybe the only familiar name that we see is Rebecca. We get to verse 23 and we see Rebecca and she's mentioned only in an aside, kind of denoted by this parenthetical statement in your, in your Bibles. But if you move on through Genesis, you'll see in chapter 24, Abraham says, Isaac, you need a wife and it should be from amongst your own people. So Abraham sends a servant in chapter 24 to find Isaac a wife. And who is that wife? It is Rebecca. God provides that wife by blessing Abraham's relatives with children. And what happens? Well, Isaac and Rebekah have their line continue. And there is a man named Jacob, through whom the 12 tribes of Israel emerge. And then through the tribe of Judah, hundreds of years later, there is a man named Obed, child of Ruth and of Boaz. And then Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. David the king. And David's line continued from Solomon to Uzziah to Hezekiah and Josiah throughout the exile of Israel with Zerubbabel and Abidu and through the generations to another Jacob, the father of another Joseph, 
who was the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, the Christ. God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in a child. It's fulfilled in the greatest respect with the child that is greater than Isaac, the child of promise, that is Christ. And Christ is greater than the past kings of Israel, and he's greater than the dead prophets. God's greater and greatest promise is in Christ. For in him we were blessed, chosen from the foundation of the world. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. We have hope. There is an immeasurable power that is our salvation. God's plan throughout all of time has been for Jesus to come. And that through Christ, he would unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. And so we consider the promise of God. I do not think it is a stretch. In fact, I think it is what we should be doing when we read about the life of Abraham to recognize, don't hesitate to make the connection. God's greater promise is found in Christ. For God proved himself trustworthy to Abraham by providing and shaping the faith of this father of Israel. For on the mount of the Lord, he certainly provided a sacrifice for Isaac. But greater than that, he provided a sacrifice for us. On the mounts of the Lord, Christ was killed. Christ was crucified. And even as Abraham received the promise of God in faith and obedience, we recognize how much greater it is that we will receive a new covenant through Christ and his act of obedience on the cross. That through the death of the Son of God, we would be made righteous both by God and for him. The promise of the gospel is a certain thing. Look, God fulfilled it. He fulfilled it in a way that we did not expect. This promise is also gracious, kind of revisiting the points that we've already made. God graciously spared Isaac. He blessed Israel, but ultimately he showed his grace in this way, that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. And so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does it say? What does the Bible say? It says that you will be saved, that you will be made into a people, holy unto the Lord, for God does give graciously. For we are sinners, but he did not spare his own son, whom he loved, but instead gave him up for us. How will he who has done that through Christ not give graciously to us? For you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant Jesus Christ from Abraham to Joseph, sent him to you to bless you. The promise of God is great, and it's greater still. We know this promise in Christ Jesus. For the greatest faith, the greatest sacrifice, the greatest promise of all time is found in Christ. It's first seen as far back as Genesis 3.15, where man has chosen to disobey God. And what's the promise there? Perhaps we often focus on the promise of toil and of pain and ultimately of death. But in Genesis 3.15, we have another promise. God states, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He states this to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the beginning of that promise. 
And we should track this throughout time. So as soon as we get to Abraham, we see this is the seed of promise given by God in Genesis 3, fulfilled by God at least partially in Genesis 22, and throughout all of time until, what did we sing at the very beginning of this worship service? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. This is the promise of God. But at this point, we should probably stop and ask, is this a promise that you are part of? For it does not mean, in order to be part of the promise of God, it does not mean that you are a literal descendant of Abraham. It does not mean that you have fulfilled some sort of moral obligation. It does not mean that you are upright and proper and religious. No, no status before men can assure your place in front of God. Only the work of Christ can be the assurance of your salvation. Only the work of Christ guarantees the promise of God. Do I say so much? Do I, can I enter God's rest by my own word? No. Why is that? It's because we've all failed in that respect, even in the sense of just being trustworthy. There are, far many, there are many more ways that we can fail, but in the sense of being trustworthy, we can't even keep promises to ourselves, promises to those who are around us, those whom we love. Remember, we could promise to each other to love one another, but we fail in that so often. How much more do you fail when you promise to God, Lord, I will enter your rest through my obedience? It can't happen. This is a promise that words alone, our words alone, cannot guarantee us. But God has promised a much greater method to enter this promise, which is Christ Jesus. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that we deserved so that we are to trust in him. We are guaranteed his blessing. That is freedom from sin, life everlasting, and fellowship with the Father. Are you part of the promise? Is Christ the guarantee of your salvation? Or do we still struggle and fight for it ourselves through our own works? Perhaps sometimes we do. We should repent of that, recognizing that every additional good work that we pile on to Christ is not a good thing. In fact, it's something that, that cheapens his work. Trust God and only him. Believe in Christ and only his work will be enough save you from your sin. For there is no good, there is no gracious thing, there is no certain promise found outside of God. There is only judgment, there is only death. But to those who are in Christ, there is life. And if that is the basis of your faith, if you are a member here, or if you are, you know, if you are a Christian, and the basis of your faith is the work of Christ, then you should be encouraged You should be encouraged when you read a story about Abraham, even right now. For look around you. God has been at work to save for himself a people, to set aside a holy people for his own possession. Those sitting next to you, no matter how different they are, are the heirs of the promise of God. A reminder that God continually preserves a people we have this thing at Redeemer Church. It's a church directory, and all the photos look a little bit like uh, you were caught for a crime. Just a little bit. 
But it's a very good reminder. It's like a contemporary version of our, of our genealogy because this is your family. Redeemer Church started a few years ago. I wasn't part of that process, but uh, the people that were, this this initial group, a core team. There's Chet and Phyllis, and Jim and Judy, Caleb and Kelly came up to join. Phil and Polly Hoeing were here. Rachel was here, Brett Geist, Quinn, Joe Dawes, also maybe not here, oh, Joe, and then Kyle. And what, was, and what did God do? He was faithful to grow that number. And so in addition to those people, we have added so many. Claudia, Sadie, Jamie, Mackenzie, Ben and Jen, Mike, Kyla, Eric, Rachel, Annie, Joel, Jill, Annika, Rachel Hall. So we have multiple Rachels. We also have multiple Aarons, but we have nicknames for them. Uh, so Capper, uh, Bria, Jason and Casey, Carson, Aaron Kreitz, Sarah Kreitz, Abel, Gretchen, Jeff, AJ and Katrina. I think I may have already said your name. No? AJ and Katrina. Uh, Brett Phelan, multiple Bretts as well. Aaron Ross and Travis Ross and Matt and Ruth and Beth and Eric. I read these names not because, you know, we all, it shouldn't be a boring thing, right? You know all these people. The same attitude, right? Rejoice in the fact God has been faithful to provide. And even as some people have left, um, we think of Sarah and Peter Ferris. There's Caleb Fair or Big Caleb, <laughs> as we sometimes call him. Katie Hines, John Gage, Joel Vanderwood, Josh Howe. God has still been faithful to bring new people. Only a few weeks ago, we voted on Edmund and Young, Josh and Jennifer, Ben and Molly. God is faithful. A few years ago, I had the chance to see that girl from the introduction again. Remember, her father had left her. And when I saw her a few years ago, her father hadn't come back. But she wasn't sad anymore. What had happened? Well, what she had done is she had surrounded herself with her church family. In fact, the church had sought her out. They had protected her. And there was an older man in the church who watched after her as if, as a surrogate father. He watched out for her. He cared for her. And when she found a husband, he walked her down the aisle. But these friends were only a reminder. This older man, although he did a great thing, was only a pale reflection of this greater promise. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob was her God and was her father. He would never leave her. He would never forsake her. How did he know that? It's because he promised. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have worked throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of time, to fulfill your promises, to make yourself known to us. Lord, we pray that we would run to you for refuge, trust in you, and believe in Christ Jesus, who is the fulfillment of that great promise, until we worship together with him again at the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.